2: Hello and welcome to the Motormouth podcast with me Tim Sylvie and f one who's standing in for Harry Benjamin while he's out on commentary duties. This is the place where we meet a figure from the world of motorsport and dive into their lives and careers, often uncovering truths you never knew existed. We've sat down with Formula One drivers, team principals, touring car stars, Le Mans and IndyCar winners famous broadcasters, content creators, and pioneers, all to make sure that you get behind the visor and hear from the world's biggest and most interesting names. If there's anyone with a story to tell, they usually tell it right here. Check us out at motormouth.club, download our app, check out our regular Motormouth kart race where you can race alongside the stars and support our partners at Movember and the Brain Tumor Charity. And don't forget, please subscribe to our show, leave a review, it really makes a difference. Find us on all the major podcast channels. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat. Hello, Tim Sylvie here, and today we're joined by a man who was born in Sao Paulo in 1984. And did you know, Tom, that Sao Paulo, the capital of Brazil's largest state, which is also called Sao Paulo, is home to more than 41 million people, which is a ridiculous statistic. But, Thomas? A couple of quick-fire Brazilian-esque questions for you to test your Ooh. knowledge. Are you ready? So first, question for then. Me. what is the capital city of Brazil?
3: I think it's Brasilia,
2: isn't it? Yeah.
3: Come on. Geography's my specialist subject, mate. It was always going to be easy, that one. Come okay. on, Tim. Do okay. better.
2: Okay, okay. What is the most typical form of music in Brazil?
3: <laughs> um okay oh i i have absolutely i'll give you a, i'll give you, a, n- I'll give you no
2: up. idea a samba b flamenco or c the tango
3: oh i watching i haven't watched Strictly come dancing for a while um i'm gonna say i'm gonna say the uh, samba
2: You're, you're doing very well. Two out of two. Knowledge. Okay. Knowledge. One. Love it. Last one for you. This is hard. If you get this, I'll be impressed. Brazil okay. is bordered with all countries in South America, except for which two? Is it Bolivia and Peru, Uruguay and Paraguay, or Chile and Ecuador? Well,
3: I'm pretty sure it doesn't border Chile, so I'm going to say Chile and Ecuador.
2: You're absolutely horribly right. It's, it's... Do you know what?
3: I need, I need to get a map up. I need to get a map You're up. Right. A sec, You're I'm right. Because I'm sure it doesn't. I take it back.
2: I take it back. Was that right? Yeah. Chile and Ecuador. Yes. You're absolutely Come right. Come on. Yeah. It's, that was my fault. I hold my hands up. I thought you were wrong. You were wow. correct. Three out of three. I'm seriously impressed, Tom. Well done. No, no faith, Tim. No faith. I'm going to catch you <laughs> out one of these days. Right. Shall we introduce today's guest?
3: Let's do
2: it, mate. Let's go. So today we're joined by Lucas Degrassi. He's a man at the cutting edge of electric mobility. He's the winner of the first ever Formula E race in Beijing in 2014 and is the most successful driver in the history of the championship. He's been involved in the series since the start, working alongside the likes of Alejandro Agag, Susie Wolf, Jerome D'Ambrosio, and his journey to the top of motorsport has seen him compete in karts, GP2, Le Mans, Formula E, and of course, Formula One. We'll touch on all of that and the new 24 race. F1 calendar, which has just been released. He's a man that's pioneered autonomous racing and co founder of the recently launched e scooter championship. We're here to talk about his life, career, thoughts, and opinions. Lucas, a big warm welcome to the Motormouth podcast.
4: Hello, guys. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. And uh, it's a big pleasure uh, to join the podcast.
3: Lucas, thank you so much, man. Where are you joining us from today? Your, your background's not giving too much way, although I love that helmet. That looks
4: really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, that's last year's Uh I'm from I'm home. Uh, I live in Monaco. I've been living here for the past uh, twelve years since my time in Formula One, and uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, my home since I left. Uh, actually, I moved from Brazil to the UK, and then from the UK here.
3: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, first of all, let's start with where it all began, which we typically start with the guests. Where did the racing bug first hit you, Lucas? When you were younger.
4: Um. The bug really uh, uh, bit me when uh, Ayrton Senna died. Uh, I think that was the, the, the moment that I realized that uh, those racing cars that I used to watch when I was very little, and then I uh, did the same playing uh, Mario Kart uh, on, on Nintendo, was uh, actually um, uh, making a big impact for the Brazilian people. And uh, uh, I was young, I was nine years old, uh, I had my first few experiences with go kart, but it was something like another sport that I did. I did. I like football. I like skateboard. I like surfing. I liked everything. And go karting, actually, I started doing this because I had I had older cousins that would take me to the go kart, the rental go kart, and I used to play around a little bit. And I was starting to do some more uh, serious racing there. But uh, after Senna died, I was like, okay, I want to. I want to become a professional racing driver. I want to at least have I know a small percentage of these impacts that he had and and uh and then as soon as I started to put more effort into it, you start having better results, you like it more, and then the snowball just grew from there.
2: What 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 was it like? At that period, I mean, you were you were still relatively young at the time when Ayrton Senna passed away. But what what was the vibe like? How did the country respond to that news? I mean, was it literally n- a national mourning?
4: It, it was it was at a similar level, and uh, uh, as far as I remember, that when uh, Queen Elizabeth died uh, uh, last week, so we had um, three days of uh, of. Uh, of bank holiday in Brazil, there were like this parade, Uh, people were queuing for kilometers to to say goodbye to Senna. He was like an idol from Brazil. It was a difficult time in the country. We were like hit by massive inflation, poverty, Uh, but everybody uh, woke up in the morning to watch the Formula One race because of him. So he was uh, also helping with education. I am sure if he would be alive, he would be Uh, Doing something in a grander scale, maybe in politics or something like this, or a minister. Uh, So he was very involved with the country. So he was a a huge loss for everybody. And I didn't, I I remember my family crying. I remember I was crying, you know, I didn't even know exactly what I was crying uh, about, but everybody was crying. It was something uh, very emotional. I, I remember exactly, like hour by hour, what happened since. Uh, my father calling me and said there was an accident. I was not watching the race. I was actually playing with my um, uh, uh, RC airplanes uh, in the, a little bit further away. And then I went back home and stayed in front of the TV for the rest of the afternoon. So it was a huge impact. Yeah, because it, it's the thing with Senna is that there were
3: many Brazilian drivers in Formula 1 before him. There's been many after. But there was clearly something about him that seemed to kind of captivate, would you say, because again, you'd had successful, there'd been successful Brazilian drivers before, but I guess, was it that off um, the the combination of his success, but also all of the stuff he did um, off track that really made him, you know, such, because it is one thing being, you know, famous for being an F1 driver, but Senna just seemed to captivate people on
4: a whole new level. Yeah, I think he was, um, he 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 made many breakthroughs on the sport of Formula One. So Formula One success, largely, not largely, but a big part of it, is due to these iconic people that actually have been through the the, the, the years. And Senna was completely uh, an outlier uh, on the on the sense that the way he marketed himself, the way he positioned himself, uh, the fight he had on track he was very. Aggressive on track, he took a lot of risk. He was aggressive off track, you know. There was a lot of incidents. He left. Uh, uh, he went against FIA. You know, there, there was a lot of uh, stories. So I think uh, he was an iconic uh, piece, uh, and he excelled not only on track but outside of the racetrack. And on top of it, in his social and uh, um, and his, lo- his his love for Brazil, carrying the flag all the time. You know, being proud of being Brazilian I think that was uh, that was unique and uh, it changed the, the, how Brazilians they saw the sport
2: now let's bring it back to you let's fast forward through your career to Formula One it was 2004 when you bagged your role as reserve driver for the Renault Formula One team how did that first opportunity with them come about?
4: In 2004, I joined the Renault, Renault driver development program called the RDB with the likes of uh, Kovalainen, uh, Kubica, uh, um, Loic Duval, uh, Frank Montagny, and some others, uh, Jerome D'Ambrosio later on, Guido van der Roman uh, Romain Grosjean later on. Um, <clears throat> so I joined this program. And in 2004, I left Universal, basically I quit university in Brazil. And in Brazil, I've been doing like go-karting and Formula up to Formula Renault, which was like Formula 4 uh, back then. And I, moved, I took my bags and I moved to UK and I did British Formula 3 as, as part of the program. My first test with Formula 1 would happen one year later after I won the Macau uh, Grand Prix uh, in Formula 3. Uh, was a very special podium uh, because second place was uh, Kubica and third place was uh, Vettel uh, back then. And I, I got my first Formula One test. That was end of 2005. It was uh, with the V10s and uh, the, the late development of the car that would be champion that year, of Alonso. And uh, I tested in Hares. Then I continued the development 2006 and seven uh, doing some straight line and tests, and then in 2008 I became the reserve driver for Renault. 2008 and nine, and 2010 I did my race season in Virgin Race. So,
3: what do you um, what, what do you remember about that um, that Macau Grand Prix? Because obviously that was a, a gr- grid packed with again Kubica and, and Vettel two and three. You won. Like, how did qualifying go? What do you what do you kind of remember about the
4: race? Yeah, I I, I was um, so Kubica was coming with uh, Tom's uh, Japanese form because the Macau Grand Prix is like the World Championship of uh, of Formula Three. So the there is Formula Three coming from all over. Back then, it was like there was there was no international Formula Three. There was the local Formula Threes like Euro Series, South American, Japanese, French, German, and then everybody would go to the Macau race. That was the most difficult track, the most dangerous track. So we would go there and race. The year before was my rookie year in Macau uh, in 2004, and I finished uh, third. Um, uh, Second was Kubica, and the first was Prema, Alexander Prema, which later would be the teammate of Hamilton in Formula 2. But then in that second year, I I qualified, I think, eighth um, in the pre-final. And then on the pre-final, I started eighth, finished fifth. And then on the final, I started fifth, uh, got to the lead. Uh, I overtook uh, Kubica down the straight. Um, then after I got overtaken back. Then I was second for pretty much the whole race up to the moment there was a safety car. Uh, a bit like the Verstappen Hamilton situation, I was second uh, and there was a safety car. The safety car restarted and restarted with two laps to go. So on the restart, uh, Macau has a very long straight, the longest straight in Formula Three, something like two kilometers straight, a bit like the Spa Rouge, uh, and the back straight uh, a little bit longer than that. So I got in the slipstream, I passed Kubica, managed to open a small gap, held him up in the last lap, and won the Macau race. So that was uh, uh, it was the first Brazilian to win since I think Senna uh, or uh, or. Or or somebody was uh, back then for my career was huge. Was how I came up on the spotlight, let's say, um, and then I got my first Formula One test because of that.
2: It's it's mad that race. It's so it's such an important race in a driver's career, and if you win it, it makes such a big difference. It, it sort of feels like it doesn't get enough. Yeah, I think if you're a if you're a motorsport fan or you're in the industry or you love your racing, you know about that mm-hmm. race. If you're your sort of armchair F one fan. You don't really know about it. It seems a shame that it's not got more publicity because some of the names that have won that, and it's it's such a challenging race. And like you say, it's a dangerous track, and we've seen some horrific accidents there. Who was that girl that took off and went into the? Sophia. Com- Sophia Flores. Sophia Flash, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh my- God, I mean, accidents like that are just terrifying. But um, no, massive kudos for you for winning that race. Well, it's also there was the
4: GT crash.
2: Uh, yeah, the huge pileup. Yeah, insane. Yeah, if you
4: if you see that
2: pile up and you see one car on top of
4: everybody, that's my car, actually. <laughs> By the way, that oh 11. yeah, of course,
2: reckless. I completely forgot about that. Damn right, reckless, <laughs> causing chaos on the streets of Macau. Um, now you you mentioned Virgin there. You stepped up to to Virgin as a as a full blown F one driver can you remember the emotions and that feeling when you first sat on the grid put your foot to the floor and took off just before we get into that bear with me for two minutes i must tell you about our new sponsors of the show and it's one that means a great deal to us all on a very personal level here at the motormouth podcast in 2021 dana the founder of Motors one passed away suddenly and without warning whilst visiting family in the states dana was one of my very best friends The legacy he left with his family and his business is incredible and I'm hugely humbled and proud to have his booming business as part of this show. Sponsors are vital for our survival and make sure we continue to bring you interviews with the biggest names in racing. So if you or your company needs event transportation, look no further than the team at Motus One. They have you covered anywhere in the world. From a single chauffeur driven sedan to a fleet of luxury SUVs, Teslas or motor coaches, find your transportation solution with Motus One. They've got offices worldwide, including the Middle East, Europe and Africa, and will support your transportation needs regardless of location. Motus One is committed to world class service at the very best rates to ensure your event goes off without a hitch. Contact them at Motus1.com. We'll put all their social links in the podcast description. A massive, massive thanks to Dana, his wife, Claudia, his kids, the rest of the Motus1 team. Thank you for having faith in our show and joining us for Season 12. Right, back to it. On with the show.
4: Uh, to, to be 100% honest with you, I it was great. When I signed my contract and I knew I would be in Formula 1 and I did the announcement... It was like a sentiment of mission accomplished, you know, to reach Formula One, which was my dream. It's pretty much every racing driver' dream to, to be there on the grid. Um, and first race, I was, uh, of course, nervous, but the car itself had so many problems. We had so much stuff to resolve yeah. that actually my mind was just trying to fix the problems that we had on the car. The fuel tank was not big enough. Uh, I, well, we were completely overweight. Uh, there was so many. The brakes were overheating. The gearbox was leaking. I mean, there was like... Uh, and then I was like, I was almost sure we're not going to finish the race because was during testing season, we almost didn't do a full race uh, before that. So I knew that was uh, we are going to struggle massively.
2: But Lucas, uh, just so- sorry to interrupt you mid-flow. How does that happen with an F1, a, a relatively modern F1 team? I know it's, you know... It, it, I know there are lots of different reasons, but how can it get to a point where you're on the grid and you're thinking about all these issues that just haven't been addressed? Is it financial? Was it was it the quality of staff? What, what causes it?
4: Um, to, to build up a Formula One team is like building up a company. It's almost like asking somebody, okay, now you're going to make, a, a, let's say a, a good analogy, a car or a bicycle or whatever good that you want to make as a company. It takes time to put the right people in the right place, to create a a culture inside the company, to create a dynamic and to build a Formula One car or to build any race car from scratch, it requires a huge amount of engineering. And of course you're trying to take that engineering to the extreme level. And that's why, for example, an analogy, that's why you see uh, so much reliability problems with Ferrari now because they're pushing the performance and then when you push performance, you try to make the parts lighter than the parts break. Uh, you try to make the gearbox as thin as possible and with least, the least amount of friction as possible. But because you never done that in the past, uh, it's the first time you're building a Formula One car, you take a lot of things wrong. You take a lot of assumptions which are not the correct ones. Uh, and it, it's literally nobody's fault. You can put all the money you want. Um, I give you the example of Honda. With experience, they took the even Mercedes, with experience, with all the money in the world, it takes years for you to make a competitive engine. It takes years to make a competitive car. And it's not because of the lack of money. It's basically the, 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 the whole ecosystem and the culture of making uh, such a complex machinery as a race car. And it's not only Formula One. You can make, you can uh, argue that for, let's say, a sports car, a GT, even to a production line car. So th- that was the that that was the problem. Was well, the problem was the first year. Of course, there is a lot of incompetences, also on top of it, like not calculating the right size of fuel tank or putting the pump in the wrong place. This is something basic that, okay, you probably would fire the guy that did that, but in the grand scheme of things it's uh there was a lot of things that could have done better and uh, it's basically lack of experience and obviously you're hired to that team
3: as a driver but there's so much more that not just in terms of kind of car setup but also you know being a, a presence in the garage and, and understanding that i guess business and commercial side and and the, the team being able to say to you look lucas we don't have a competitive car at the moment all of that stuff outside of the car has that always been something of interest to you? Because I imagine there's a lot of drivers who just turn up and they're not really interested. They just want to be given a quick car. They just want to drive. They don't really care about the other stuff. Do you do you find interest in the other, the more business, the more kind of commercial sides of the
4: of the sport as well? The beautiful thing about motorsport is that it's one of the only sports in the world that combines entertainment and technology development that actually will change the world. Uh, if you look at football, it's great entertainment, but it doesn't really change anything. Uh, the sport has been probably very similar for the past 100 years. Um, motorsport has the power to change mobility and change technology for the better. And when technology evolves, it's always uh, the general tendency is for the better. So racing has changed, has shaped, The mobility world and the technology we use today and the safety and the sustainability we have today uh, was partly due because of motorsport pushing and engineers pushing the boundary of race. So for me, motorsport is a platform uh, to, of course, to have entertainment, to win races, to do what we love, to talk about what we love, but also to promote businesses and to promote the technology and this is always this has always been on my mind of course i love the sport and I, i'm there to win races but uh i always seen that as a possibility to push this uh to push these boundaries and to push these points uh, forward uh, through motorsport so i'm always i'm very deep into the technology i'm very interested about the business how the system works how the car works, how to make up a team, a company. And I know that racing is going to only be part of my life. There will be a second, third part of my life that will be not inside the car, outside of the car doing something else. So I try to learn as much as I can in, in, in the most vast array of possibilities that I can.
2: Now, let's dive a bit deeper into the sustainability side of things. In terms of sustainability and specifically climate change, where does Formula One sit in that landscape and where does its future lie? Do, does it have a future? You know, We know Formula E has this exclusivity to single-seater electric racing for, for a number of years. They're, they're going green as quickly as they can. There's teams going um, completely carbon neutral. Is Formula One keeping up? Does it have a place in 20, 25 years in, in motor racing?
4: Uh, the short answer is yes, but uh, sustainability has many different sides. And for me personally, sustainability is not about eating tofu and hugging trees. Sustainability is about uh, how do we improve technology and how do we improve the quality of lives of people for the better? How do you provide mobility to people in the UK which are going to go through an energy crisis uh, this winter? How do you provide cheaper mobility for Africa and South America. This is all related to the technologies that we are developing racing and the technology that, and, and and everything that we are pushing forward. Um, in terms of pure racing and where the sport position itself, it's very important to have a future. And Formula One is in a crossroad, which um, it could be it, could, it, it doesn't really know how to make this transition towards electric, and if it needs to make this transition towards electric. If we look a hundred years in the future to not have any argument about time frames, everything is gonna be electric. So the source of these electrons going around, they, <clears throat> so coming back. So the, the 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 general tendency of humanity is to go from Low energy and low density power uh, machines to high energy, high density, high efficient machines. We go from, uh, let's say, a horse, which eats a lot and caused a lot of sustainable problems. Actually, just a short uh, parenthesis in the middle of this story. The sustainability problem of Manhattan in New York was there were too many horses and they were shitting everywhere. (laughs) Oh, and God. there was a huge plague of rats and stuff because there were too many horses for, for the tiny island, that is. Yeah. And the, actually, the internal combustion engine solved this problem. So actually, sustainability moved forward from horses, actually, to internal combustion engines. So people saying, oh, we should ride horses. Actually, we can't. There, You can't 8 billion people around the world ride horses.
2: We'll be swimming in horse so shit. We, Sorry, we'll be swimming in horse shit. There'll be no escape. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> so actually, we move from low energy, low density uh, machines to high energy and high density uh, machines. And internal combustion engine has a, 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 a thermodynamic limit that it cannot extract more energy out of uh, 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 from combustion out of a certain limit. Uh, which is related to temperature. So there is a limit it can go. Uh, electric engines, on the other, on the upper hand, they are almost 100% efficient. So the Falmai motors, they are 98% efficient. The problem is the energy source, which is the great discussion. Is the battery will be a fuel cell, it could be uh, even, uh, for example, it could be a uh, uh, nuclear fission uh, not nuclear fission, nuclear fusion, mm-hmm. that uh, release alpha particles that create an electric uh, current. It, it doesn't matter, but electric motors will be the future. Um, so everything that moves will be electric. On top of it, electric motors, they don't create pollution on site. So you can say, ah, but we can run on biofuel, like Formula One is going to biofuel yeah. now. Perfect. Biofuel, it actually works for climate change because the carbon, the net total carbon is neutral, the plants, they get carbon here, you burn yeah. carbon there, the net is zero. But if you're cycling behind a car that is running on biofuel or even e-fuel, you're still going to get the same pollution as a normal car running on fossil fuel because the molecule is the same. The combustion process creates a lot of pollutants. So there is the difference of sustainability between pollution and climate change, which also are separated topics. Um, So it's very hard for Formula One at the moment, the most uh, dense packed energy power machines we have, they are internal combustion engines. They are actually jet engines from aeroplanes and also the highly sophisticated internal combustion engines from f one cars. They cannot go battery electric, but it's because of battery, not because of the motor itself. In terms of power to weight ratio, the electric motor has a higher uh, power-to-weight ratio than a combustion engine. Already, the problem is when you put together with the battery, it doesn't. Mm. So, planes—they are not going to go electric very soon. You cannot. There is no technology uh, to make planes electric, uh, especially intercontinental flights. Short.
3: Flight yeah, there's planes, only like tiny planes that they've like that like four seat capacity,
4: which
2: is yeah exactly, yeah.
4: but not international ones. Mm. Uh, so Formula One is in this crossroad. It needs to cut pollution. It needs to be seen as sustainable, but they don't have the technology to actually do what they do today with the new level of technology. So they, do they wait longer? Do they transition faster? In my opinion, personally, they could eventually continue to develop internal combustion engines because internal combustion engines will stay in in the world for the next 10, 20, 30 years because it, it, it will be needed for airplanes. Mm. It will be needed for uh, some specific areas. There are uh, there are use cases for internal combustion, or they can only say, or they can also say, look, we will be entertainment only, like NASCAR, and mm. we don't care about the sustainability part. We're going to develop sustainability in lightweight materials. So we're going to make the car very light because light, uh, developing lightweight and strong materials that will contribute for a sustainable future for Earth. So you could argue about sustainability in many different ways, yeah. not yeah. only on the energy source. Yeah. You could uh, say, look, Formula One can go V10 with biofuel made in Brazil, sugarcane fuel made in Brazil, which they, now Formula One will have 10% of. IndyCar run it 100%. When I started go-karting, in ninety six, I run 100% <laughs> because ethanol actually has more octanes per unit than gasoline. So it creates more power, it has less energy density, but has mm. more power. Not, so but... my point is, there are many, it's, it's not a very, it, there is a lot of nuances and the discussion mm. is very profound. And there is many ways for you to position yourself. What we cannot have is greenwashing. Yeah. Saying, ah, mm. oh, we're going to be sustainable. In the end, we are not.
2: Yeah.
4: They just released the calendar. More and uh, and uh, they, they calculated calculated. 170,000 kilometers of flights. More than 96, 95, 96% of the carbon footprint of the whole Formula 1 series Logistics. is the traveling. It's yeah. not the car. Mm-hmm. So if the car is V10, is V8, it doesn't really doesn't matter. matter yeah. So that, that's exactly what I want to uh, to, to argue. It's, it's not very simple to say it is sustainable or not. There are many... Uh, different ways of communicating and developing and progressing the sport forward
3: Mm. because we're still very much in that discovery phase because even with we've even with um lithium ion batteries in in electric cars it's the precious metals that are being used they need to be mined so there's like that there's so many different ways and, and i guess with you know whether it's formulary e or extreme yeah. e or e1 series on on, like... on, on, the,
4: on this topic so the yeah so, so just to just to finish the, the let's say a little bit of the nerdy side of the technology <laughs> uh i love so, this this is great so so the 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 batteries uh the batteries are the new batteries are 100 recyclable so you just melt them up you just need energy but if considering you have energy, they are 100% recyclable. You can take. Are these all them solid it. state or lithium ion? No, the lithium ion. Okay, 100%. So basically, the lithium ion is not made of lithium, neither ion. They are made of nickel, and nickel is as abundant in the in on Earth as iron. Very, I mean, we can do, we can do batteries for the next uh, one billion years with the amount of nickel we have on Earth. So then basically the batteries are made largely of nickel. And then we have some uh, graphite on the, on the anode. And the cathode is uh, basically it's NMC, it's nickel, manganese, cobalt. The problem is the manganese and cobalt. Uh, the cobalt is mined mainly in Africa. Africa is very unstable. Actually, if Africa was politically stable, it would be the best thing for Africa because we would buy cobalt for them and we would send money to Africa, we would develop Africa. But it's not. So there is, therefore, there is a lot of problems with cobalt. The new batteries of lithium-ion with NMC, they have a NMC content of only 10% cobalt on the cathode, which it's very little on the battery. Uh, and the new ones, the, new, the one that Tesla announced, has only nickel doesn't have the cobalt, neither the manganese. But this is not the battery that will go in the cars. The new batteries, the cheaper ones, is the uh, nickel iron phosphate. So pretty much the battery is made out of iron. And iron, it's the same iron that you build bridges or homes or whatever. So uh, requires energy to make batteries, requires. The batteries are heavy, they are. But they are fully recyclable. They are not pollutant at all. And uh, as far as they are, there is a process to discard them. And these batteries, the nickel nickel iron phosphate, they are are worse than the lithium ion, but they are much cheaper and they're much easier and safer to do. And this is the first stage. Then you go to the second stage is solid state. And solid state is more or less the same, but instead of having a liquid in the middle, you have like a gel that conducts the, the ion to move from the cathode to the anode through the, to the membrane. And then the third generation of batteries is uh, graphene. And graphene is carbon. is basically 2D carbon structure. And then the potential is a hundred times the energy we have now. Um, the already in laboratory, you can do small scale, but then is basically carbon, and carbon you have everywhere. So as far as you can make graphene in large scale, you'll be able to do the batteries of graphene. There is problem of controllability, uh, anyway, production methods. But anyway, it will come.
2: It's just a matter of time. A very quick interruption to remind you to check out our sponsors, Motus One, the event transportation company. Motus One is the Industry leader in complex transport management from hospitality, talent, production crews, VIPs and artist transport, Motus One's team have got you covered. They've also launched their leading edge cloud-based event transportation management system called Motus Ride. Now you can manage your entire event transport program digitally. Make bookings, allocate rides, create approval processes, see reports, track costs, loads more head over to motors1.com and hear how they can support your event transportation needs. Back to the show. Lucas, do you think there's an element of, of Formula One trying to pull the wool over our eyes slightly? When I've just pulled up the um, sustainability report, um, which anyone can access online from Formula One. And as you rightly say, that the power emission unit, the statistic is actually 0.7% of the annual emissions come from the the power unit itself with event operations at 7.3, logistics 45%, facilities and factories 19, and business travel 27. So the car is actually having a really minimal impact. But that feels like the message that we get publicly is we've got to sort the car out, need to sort the car out, that'll trickle down into our everyday lives. No one really talks vocally from a fan perspective about the logistics. Do you think this is a This is a purposeful tactic from Formula One or is this just, I don't know, a lack of understanding and education elsewhere in the sport?
4: I think people are not very interested if you talk about sustainability with logistics. And I just tweeted today, if you want to make uh, motorsport sustainable and create a problem for the engineers to solve, for example, you could come up with a rule that the freight weight needs to reduce 5% every year and then you have to come up with these clever ideas how do i make the parts lighter how do i make the tools lighter oh, yeah. so actually the freight which is the biggest impact in sustainability becomes 5% lighter every day this will be a much much bigger impact than anything else on the sustainability side and the other fallacy that is commonly used is that the the engines from the formula 1 are extremely efficient over 50% they are only efficient as the de- And they say it's the most efficient uh, engine in the world, which is not the case. The most efficient engine in the world are from large ships. Are the two-stroke diesel engines? They are the most efficient engines. They rev at forty RPM. You can see the piston going up and down, but they are, but because they are so slow and because there is this, uh, they are huge. They are the most. They are actually. A gas turbine that produces electricity is even more efficient than this. It's also internal combustion in a way, but they are fixed. Um, But uh, the reason why they say that the Formula One engine is so uh, efficient is because they have this incredibly expensive and complex system to harvest energy, like the two KERS systems, plus complex materials, extremely... um, um, complex uh, solutions within the engine that will never go to a commercial product. It's too expensive, it's too fragile, it's too expensive, it will never go there. So saying that the technology of the engine will, we will see that in the car is also not true. We are reaching like uh, a limit on the, on the thermodynamic limit that we can extract mechanical uh, power from the combustion, from the chemical combustion uh, it, that happens inside um, uh, happens inside the engine it is true that we increase this efficiency massively with higher pressure higher temperature better materials but it is 50% we'll never reach 70 uh, and electric engines are already at 98.5 sometimes 99 so uh, yeah that, that that's the difference
3: it, it, I just think that the like I was, I was saying about like the it's almost the gamification where you've got Formula E, you've got Extreme E, you've got E1, the boats, you've got all of these different series kind of tackling this problem. And, and again, like you said, kind of combining the, the sport with the engineering challenge. And I think that's really going to push things forward. But yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Like the if, if F1 wants to make an actual change and not just be perceived to be making a change, it needs to do... Well, I mean, this 24 race calendar... I mean, a lot of people have made suggestions of how they can, you know, tighten things up and have less travelling. We're still going from, I think, we're going from Baku to, to Miami and then back to Europe again, I think, aren't we, Tim? Can, can, yeah, have you got yeah. it up?
2: Because
3: uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah,
2: the roots the routes are bonkers, and they often. Do, but like we said before, Tom, they, it comes down to in F one, it comes down to commercials. Like if it's not commercially or economically viable for them to go from to close country to close country to close country and come back to the UK, it, they'll do it because it, it money but, talks. But it's
4: but it's fine to do it. So I on the same tweet as I said about the calendar and the freight, I said, look, the easiest thing. So if you look at Formula One as another business in the world, because if you look at the whole impact of Formula One in overall emissions worldwide, it's tiny yeah. as well. So if you compare this with the whole world. But what is very interesting is that um, Formula One could just be 100% carbon neutral tomorrow if they buy carbon credits. So carbon credits is a very uh, unknown concept. So basically, carbon credits, it's, uh, it's basically trying to level out different business and different emissions to the same goal. So if one business is very carbon dense, it needs to buy a lot of carbon credits. If another business is already very efficient and doesn't emit that much carbon, it doesn't need to buy carbon credits. So you're basically trying to compare apples with apples across many different businesses worldwide. So actually F one could start just buying carbon credits and at one point, exactly as the point that Tim said now, at one point That the carbon credit will be so expensive that these 20 race, 24 race calendars will make no sense economically anymore. So the pressure is actually not on F1, but on every single business summed to have the best impact. And as soon as the carbon credit becomes more expensive, these businesses are forced economically to try to solve this conundrum of reducing the carbon footprint. So we put an economic pressure on deciding something like the calendar. It's not up to the regulatory bodies or to Formula One to say, ah, I'm not gonna do this or that. They're gonna do what's best for them and everybody do what's best for them. But if there is a common sense across countries, a a worldwide um, uh, system of carbon credit that is concise and strict and regulated, different business will adapt. And as soon as this uh, starts to be, become more expensive, business will make more sustainable decisions. And Formula One could be tomorrow carbon neutral, if they buy whatever, a million carbon credits that will cost for them $10 million, which is nothing. And then they will be uh, fully carbon neutral straight away.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating and a huge subject. And it's one that stirs emotion, doesn't it? It's hard not to get sort of angry about it in a way. And it's hard not to argue against electric power. You know, some of the things you were saying there, you know, you you see the stuff around biofuels and Formula One and more and more efficient engines and new stuff coming in 2026. And you sort of go, you sort of nod along and think, yeah, you go Formula One. That's great. But when you get into the weeds of it and you start to understand it and you realize that actually it's all a bit smoke and mirrors and you know, it sort of gets you a bit frustrated. Anyway, listen. Let's let's talk more about you. Um, we've taken up loads of your time already, um, but we want we want to get uh, into your career a little bit as well. You, in recent history, Formula E, you you were racing for Rocket Venturi Racing, soon to be Maserati Racing in season nine. You worked with some terrific people there, Jerome Dambrosio, Susie Wolf. How do you look back on your time at, at uh, Rocket Venturi Racing? Um, great. I had a,
4: a, a big transition year between Audi, which I stayed for a decade uh, racing for them uh, from the golden era of sports car in LMP1 hybrid with more than 1,000 horsepower. And then we made the transition to Formula E. So I stayed with them for 10 years until they decided now to go to Formula 1, in which I could not stay with them anymore. And then uh, this year with Rocket Venturi was a bit of a challenge because it was the um, uh, last year of this Gen 2 car. And Venturi was, uh, it's a small team, but with very good people. And we managed to take the team to the second place in the championship. And uh, I started uh, after the half of the season to get my stuff together and start delivering consistent podiums and results, because it takes a little bit of time to create this culture with the engineer. You know, um, the other day I was uh, talking to a friend and I used this analogy. You know, when you know somebody so well that you go to the pub and you know already that they cannot have the next beer, uh, you don't even need to ask, Tom, right? You don't I said, you don't even. How dare you, Tim? <laughs> you, you don't even need to ask. So that's the kind of uh, relationship that you must have with your engineer, with your data engineer and with the guys around you. You almost like you don't need to speak about it to know what you right, want. yeah and that takes time to create in any team. So every time you change teams, there is uh, this process of knowing, of creating the culture, understanding how to communicate. Some people want to be very direct, the other need to be a little bit more uh, uh, polite, or, you know, uh, it depends. So um, it took me a few months to get up and running with Bentley, but I love the guys there and I had, we had an amazing time and the team uh, had an amazing result. Now changes to Maserati. And uh, I had to make the decision in the middle of the year uh, to, to, to choose my next challenge and uh, I choose Mahindra because I think on the longer run uh, to have somebody with full commitment uh, to Formula E for the next four years with full factory support people don't know the Mahindra group very well it's but it's a, it's a huge group it's the size of uh it's the size of Mercedes is the size of BMW is the size of Audi it's a, it's a it's a huge group so having them is the only racing series they do it's the only thing that they want to develop so having them behind gave me a lot of trust to uh, uh to be able to develop a winning culture there
2: yeah it's uh it, it's uh, Mahindra as you say is absolutely enormous company you know behind the uh the the racing team itself um Dilbag is obviously obviously gone is is he going to be replaced is there is there is his position going to be is it still exist or is it going to be changed up? Yes,
0: again? yes,
4: he was the team principal and CEO. We now have a new CEO and uh, there will be a team principal uh, coming along soon. At the moment, uh, there is, hasn't been uh, completely finalized, but uh, it's going the, the right direction. And Dubak has been a, a very important. Uh, um, he built Mahindra Racing from scratch. Uh, everybody's very thankful of, of his time. Um, and uh, he will be very missed by, by everybody there in Formula E in the team.
3: And, and Lucas, now that the Gen 3 car is, you know, it's been shown to the world and certainly the aesthetics of, you know, uh, it's a bit of Marmite, you love it or hate it. Um, ultimately, what <coughs> do you think of it? love it or hate it? it.
2: Come on, Tom. I,
3: I, I, you know what? I actually like it. I, I think I like it more Hang than on. most people. I are think you, are cool.
2: You, are you actually telling the truth?
3: I, am. I know. it looks like the... um. What was the thing I said it looks like the, in Star Wars? Oh, yeah. The, the,
4: the, uh, yeah, it looks like the, the Star the, the Wars. The Destroyer.
3: Death it does. It looks great. But I've got a problem with that. It looks yeah. good. But but also, from a from a, I guess, technical point of view, like, Lucas, have you, have you seen the car in person? Have you had much experience with it at all um, physically yet?
4: Yeah, I drove it. So we were in Varano testing all the mm. manufacturers uh, last week. And this car is a beast. Uh, the new Gen 3 car. Is really, really powerful. It's got a lot more so, power, isn't it? Yeah. So, in, in general terms, the car is shorter, narrower, uh, about 10 centimeters each. Uh, we have 250 kilowatts in the front axle and 350 kilowatts on the rear axle. And this is average power, which is very important to define because when you talk about combustion engine, then you say, ah, my car has 1000 horsepower. You're talking about peak power. And so, if you are in fifth gear, and you have a 1,000 horsepower, you want to get out of the red light, you can't because you need to be in the band that you have a 1,000 horsepower at 7,000 RPM. Electric motors, they produce this power at any RPM. So it's average. And although for the first season now, in gen, uh, season nine, we're only going to use the rear powertrain uh, to, 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 to push the car, the car has the potential of four-wheel drive 600 kilowatts, which means it's more than one horsepower per kilo on average. There is no other racing car on the planet that has this power to weight ratio that Paul E has. And in a car that has very little downforce because it was designed not to have downforce and in a tire that was designed not to have so many, so much grip. So the car is traction limited from almost zero to 200 kilometers per hour. Um, and so the car has, if you activate both motors, the car will accelerate faster than a Formula One car or any car, probably just slower than a dragster. Currently, it has a, an acceleration in a very, in a proximity of a Formula Two car, only with the rear axle. The car also is eighty kilos lighter than uh, last uh, season, so it's much more agile. And the only, the only downside of the car in my view uh, I'm also not a big fan of the aesthetics uh, actually when the car is naked without the extra body work uh, the car looks amazing the, the car is very tiny very narrow everything very compact I mean the the, the electric motor that generates the, the 450 horsepower it's re- literally not much bigger than this box
1: wow.
4: it's probably two boxes of those mad uh, so it's 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 really it's really the it, it's really um uh will be the same motor that powers the formula one cares in 2026, I think. 2026 yeah. so same power 350 kilowatts um so the car is it's it's a beast uh on the racing side changes completely um because uh it looks like we're gonna do a pit stop to recharge. Part of the battery at very high power. Um, we, you have brake by wire in both axles. We don't have mechanical brakes at the rear, so 100% of the rear brakes happens with engine braking. So the same engine braking that you have when you go downhill, let's say on a on a normal car that people that you see that sign on the on the motorway, keep your gear engaged. That's the you have only rear braking engine so you don't have a disc so that creates a completely brake by software feeling in the car and also having the front powertrain having the front drive shaft means that it's very weird to drive because you have forces acting in the differential in a way that when you turn and you lock the inside wheel because of the differential forces sometimes the inside wheel spins to the other side so you're going into a corner with the inside wheel spinning reverse. And it's very weird. What thing, and that, the hell? Uh, uh, my brain, that sounds uh, dangerous. My brain is and because you have a higher mass in the front axle because of this, when you lock the wheel, it takes much more time to unlock it. So to miss a corner is also much easier. And um, the car has... Uh, the grip stayed in the level that it was, and the power now is much higher. So it will be a much more critical car to drive in terms of. Uh, sounds of, like fun, though. It
2: does sound like it would be good. Do you fun. know what? The, the only car that I can think of that is even comparable to this right now from the electric world is that McMurtry thing that Max Chilton drove. That that thing carries some serious speed. That is it, fast. But
4: but that's very that's very interesting concept because it creates downforce from
2: a static pressure. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, it has two uh, tons st- uh, when it st- stood still. It, it, it yeah, like- it
4: creates a pressure differential. Yeah. So actually how aerodynamic works, because of the air speed, you create a pressure differential between the surface in the top and the surface in the bottom. So what this McMurtry do, basically just accelerate the air or you take the air out from the bottom, so it create static pressure. So that car has a lot of grip. Yeah. Um and, and it's it's a machine. I was in good actually when the car was there. I was uh, uh I was driving one of these uh, uh classic cars, uh, electrified from arrival it was amazing, but I was very impressed with what that car yeah. uh, could do. And formula E is different because the grip level is on purpose very low for the power it has. So we could go we could have gone easily three, four, five. Seconds quicker with a with a traditional soft racing tire compound and a little bit more of a wing and downforce, uh, but they don't want to do that because they want they want to keep the car as harder. It is possible to drive, and trust me, the car will be very very hard to drive.
2: Yeah, I bet. Do you do you still uh, when it came out? Uh, it came out when did they release it? It was Monaco, wasn't it? Um, in season eight, they released the car. And uh, I, I follow you on LinkedIn, and I read your article about what you how you would have designed designed, not necessarily you know the technical aspects or the, the, the engineering, but how you would have designed the car. And it looked very different. Now that you've had time to spend some time with the the Gen Three, do you still stand by those those points that you made, or, or would you retract any?
4: hundred percent to the points that I made. And actually I'm pushing for that design to be in gen four because it makes a lot of sense. Um, At the moment, it makes no sense to have the battery as a cube behind the driver. The battery needs to be on the floor of the car. So my proposal is to be a U-shape that you can actually move the driver a little bit backwards and the weight distribution a little bit forwards. So you can have a better distribution front to rear axle um, and therefore have more power at the front. Um, I want to use four tires the same, so you can exchange tires between front and rear. That is, for example, a sustainability point that does not interfere with anything. If you're able to change front tires with rear, you just need to carry one type of tire. You don't need to carry two types, front and rear tires. For example, Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and I want to use the same powertrain rear and front. So the the manufacturers they can use the same powertrain rear and front. So I hope the Gen Four car can have these shapes. I would love for the car to have movable aerodynamic devices uh, controlled by software. So like a DRS that you can open and close everywhere on track as you wish, front and rear, but in a much big grander scale. I want the full car to be controlled by by uh, movable aerodynamic devices. I mean, there is a lot of uh, things to, to, to evolve. Even, for example, rear-wheel steering. There mm-hmm. is no reason why racing cars, they don't have active rear-wheel steering. Actually, that would make a huge difference in terms of lap time if you were able to actually, because the modern cars, they all have rear-wheel steering. So also having a rear-wheel steering, uh, it's kind of simple in engineering uh, terms to do. You just basically have a, a, a changeable tolling um solenoid that can change the tolling according to the according to your steering angle or whatever you want to. Uh, that all, that all sounds very
3: sensible. Almost yeah. too sensible. I don't know why I haven't done it already, Tim. That that's, <laughs> I, I, why are they just little Lucas? I don't get it. Well,
2: what I'm reading from this is Lucas on a 1-year contract then going into management at Formula E and, and surely releases, Surely, surely. Gen, gen <laughs> <laughs> um, now we we uh,
4: I, I would love to follow up my career in something like this. I, I you see how passionate I am about engineering great. and uh if not in racing, will be in something else, but uh, that
2: probably is the next step. I love it. It's, it's fascinating. Um, now, we're going to let you go in a minute, but um, I have to squeeze in a couple of listener questions that have been sent in. Otherwise, um, I'll get told off. Um, right, I've got some, some good ones here. I'm going to try and keep them the, to the quicker ones. Uh, this is from cl 16 Out of all the categories you've raced in F1, Endurance, Formula E, which one is the most challenging? One-word answer. Each one
4: presents its own challenge. Um, it's it's very hard to, to pick something which is the most challenging and also depends on a lot of factors. So I'll have to say uh, that it depends so
2: much that I, I can't pick one. Fine, firmly on the fence. Uh, a, uh, another question from, from actually the same guy, which I love, I think a great question. Favorite fruit? Favorite fruit? Yes. Um is coconut a fruit? Oh. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a fruit. Probably. I don't know what else it'd be. It's gotta be a fruit. It's not a vegetable, so (laughs) I hate coconuts. Like bounties, those bounties. Really? I hate coconuts. I really hate them. (gasps) Um okay, one more. Uh, It's great. One more of our listener ones. Uh oh, great question, Imy Cousins uh what series that you've raced in has the best style steering wheel yes
4: the best style steering wheel yeah Hmm. that's uh that's uh. that's got him. tricky question um trying to remember
2: because
3: it... i i still don't like the williams f1 one where they don't have the screen attached because yeah, yeah. they've got the screen solid haven't they yeah and then the they're the only team that has that in F one.
4: Like a Skoda, but I understand why they would have that because it actually uh, reduces the mass. Uh, it does. So it's, yeah. easy, it's easier to the driver to actually to steer, but at the same time, you cannot look when you're <laughs> turning. So, True.
2: and the Formula E steering wheel has you have your regen on your hands. Is that right?
4: We have. Uh, we don't we probably will not gonna have the regen anymore in gen uh in a gen three right. as a, in the in the hand. But we have six pedals on the back and about uh twelve buttons in the front and another uh five click switches that you can choose twelve functions.
2: Yeah. Blimey. It's complicated. Well let's go with Formula E, seeing as you're in it as the best steering wheel. Um <laughs> now uh I'm gonna we're going to move to our final three because we've kept you nearly double the length that we were supposed to. And I expect Liv, who's who's one of your um, no, PR uh, team, is getting crossed. To, to be honest,
4: uh, it's been a, a great talk. So uh, take all
2: right, your time. In that case, have you got any hidden talents? <laughs> hidden? Talents. Like, what are you good at outside of racing and business? Is what, What's your thing? Can you sing? Got any language, any other? Well, languages, obviously. No, actually,
4: actually, actually, music and arts, uh, not at all. Um something which I'm, I I could be uh, at home I cook. Okay. Um, that's maybe a small hidden talent but I'm not very good at it. So um, I have to say oh, um, um, flying RC uh, uh, counts because actually I'm okay. very good at it. Okay. Nice.
3: I'll I like that. You. What's, your, what's your favorite meal to cook? I want to know now. What's your speciality? So yeah. my
4: favorite, my favorite food is sushi, It's Japanese. Oh. Um. Um, but what I cook, what I normally, what I cook the most is a barbecue. So like a grilled barbecue, and in Brazil, when you do, it's called the churrasco, right? You put all the meats and you grill them. And
2: that, that's what I normally when I cook. I cook something like this. Lovely, get the caipirinhas going. Um, by the way, if, <laughs> if you ever find yourself in um, in central Bedfordshire in the UK, where I live. There's a place down. The, they, they, this sounds creepy, doesn't it? This this is going somewhere. There's a place down the road from where I live called the Shuttleworth Collection, which is a an incredible uh, collection of um, pre and post war aircraft. Um, but the reason I mention it is because they have um, amazing RC um, airplane flying shows there, and it's full of people flying. The, not your typical airplane. Now, I mean, these things are ginormous. Like like passenger you could sit in them they're huge they're like passenger jets and fighter planes stunt planes everything it's, it's amazing you should google it you'll you'll be right up your 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 nerdy rc how far is it from banbury oh not far 40 40 minutes down the road oh, okay so maybe one time yeah. that i'll
4: be on the simulator there i, I check can it out. i can come back
2: <laughs> you love it the shuttleworth collection um right we do have a final three questions um which which are brought to us by our friends at Motus 1 our current podcast sponsors go check them out for all your Formula One and other motorsport uh, transportation needs. Tomo, why don't you kick us off?
3: Sure, uh, Lucas. What's got you excited at the moment? Could be inside of motorsport, could be outside of motorsport.
4: Um, currently, the most the thing that got me most excited is uh, seeing my child uh, develop. So, seeing their uh, uh, algorithm.
2: Uh, uh, coming to work love that what great question a great answer to a great question um number two how much of your success is down to luck and right place right time and how much is down to other things
4: i really think like luck uh, over many different dis- many decisions that you do in your life they tend to level out I, I was extremely lucky sometimes, like winning the first race of Formula E, and I was extremely unlucky some other times, like uh, uh, my, my gearbox breaking down in the, leading the race in Monza in GP2, fighting for the title. Yeah. Um, it would have made my career um, in a different way, uh, would have changed stuff, I don't know, but overall, I think the, you have to think that the success of someone, or at least your success, has to be, on average, due to your own work and to your own, uh, uh, how much you push things forward. You cannot, um, if you believe in luck, I think it's, uh, it's, an, it's an excuse not to work hard enough, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, Lucas, what are
3: you
4: scared of um that something happens with my children i think that's uh what i what i'm most scared of
2: yeah i had a feeling that wasn't going to be spiders or something something <laughs> i am afraid of spiders also
4: but as far as the spiders are coming like, my direction actually i will saw i would sort them out
3: uh, I've, I've got one more question as well the little Tomo question at the very end um, a lot of Brazilian junior talent coming through obviously Felipe Drogovic just won Formula 2 you've got Enzo Fittipaldi doing a great job Calcolet in uh, F3 as well uh, who do you think is going to be the next uh, Brazilian driver to, to make it into there was Formula a Brazilian
4: football? driver that won the go-kart uh, world championship also uh, this there weekend. you go yeah, yeah uh, uh, Morgato is his name uh, he's a bit older He's probably not gonna go to uh, single seaters, but uh, he won. He won the world championship. A great talent as well. Um, uh, there is a couple of guys. There is uh, a Camara as well in Formula Four or Italian Formula Four, something like this. It's it's hard to say. Um, it's it's um, there is a there is a not every racing not every uh, good go kart driver becomes a very good. Uh, a car driver, um, although you need to, to be at least in a certain level, but of course it, it does not really represent. Some drivers are extremely good at, um, uh, at the beginning of their single-seater career, and then they don't develop further when they are in a, in a, in a two-former one, and sometimes it's the other way around, like Vettel, for example. It was never outstanding in the Junior Series, but when he got the Formula 1 chance, he was outstanding and, he'd stay there and he stayed there. And he had this amazing career, and probably one of the best drivers that uh, has ever lived in uh, in F1. So it, it's very hard uh, uh, to say. I think all, the, all of these names that you said, they have the potential and they have the talent to be in the Formula 1 grid. Uh, they are probably more talented than a couple of drivers that are, are there already or they are there now. Yeah. Uh, will they become uh, world champions or uh, come to win races or they will never have the chance to drive Formula One? That would be due to timing. That would be due to uh, some uh, partial luck and some partial political decisions, uh, financial decisions. So it's very hard to to pin it down to talent. Talent, I think all of them, they will have talent to uh um uh to to be on the grid in formula 1 at one stage of their career.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to say, see how it all all pans out. I'm pleased for uh, Drogovic, though. I think it's it, it's deserved. Um but Yeah, definitely. Uh, he's
4: a uh, he's he's a great kid and uh Formula 2 is expensive and it, as awesome. you can see he was uh he was in a it's not that he's uh has the Infinite financial background no. to do whatever he wants. He needed to uh, to deliver. He had a lot of pressure. Uh, he took the risk, and he and he delivered um, yeah. the, um, what he needed this year. So I think not only he should be very proud of himself, and Brazil is very proud to have him uh, the first Formula Two champion. I was vice champion. PK was vice champion. Senna was vice champion. Uh, Nars I think was vice champion as well. Uh, it's the first time that we have a. Um, uh, uh a, a Brazilian champion so he's uh well deserved and uh
2: yeah congratulations to him. Absolutely and he's worked hard to get there, hasn't he? He's been he's been you know at it very for hard for a few years and um PK of course we had to, <laughs> we had PK on the uh on the podcast. Man that guy can talk geez he he just went on and on and on and on and on um but listen lucas we have kept you long enough we'll let you get on with your day but um absolutely fascinating chat i think this has got to be one of my favorites um so far we've done well over 100 episodes and um i love going deep into a subject and the whole sustainability and climate change area is truly fascinating Um, best of luck with all your efforts in that regard of course best of luck with mahindra in season nine in the new gen three car Uh, we can't wait to see how you get on there um, but for now, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and joining us on the podcast.
4: Well, thank you very much, Tim, uh, for uh, for having me here. Tom, also, uh, thanks very much for the for the time. And uh, it has been a, a big, big pleasure. Um, I hope we had another hour to talk about so many other <laughs> subjects. Has uh, been a, a great time. Thank well, you very
2: much. We'll have to do round two because we haven't even got onto the scooters yet. So um, there, there's, there's plenty more. <laughs> Definitely. Then we talk about this. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Well, until, until um, Lucas Degrassi 2.0, thanks for joining us. See you soon.
3: Thank you so much for listening to the Motor Mouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at motormouth underscore, Instagram at motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motor Mouth. You can also download the Motor Mouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MN tv create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy we're also proud to be supporting the brain tumor charity too so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast